The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. As you, as you filter back in, uh, just one more thing. With the book study, just so you kind of understand what's happening this summer, I know many people say, well, I'm traveling a lot or I'm going to be gone a lot, and uh, you're the norm. That's what we expect. And so we'd still encourage you to sign up. Come when you can, but read the books uh, as you go on vacation, as you take flights, as you're driving in the car. It's a great time to grow in your relationship with the Lord. We're going to meet at LifeBridge Church on Tuesday nights at 630 and uh, there will be child care provided. We'll be in three different classrooms for the different studies. And then uh, if any of you are up for it, I'm sure we'll hit Dairy Queen after. And so sign up. We'd love to have you there. Um, it's going to be a great, great time of growth. So this past uh, year, New Year's, uh, Trish and I had a New Year's Eve party. Uh, some of you were there. It was a great time. <clears throat> One of the games that we played was this game called Two Truths and a Lie. And what we did is we had people take a piece of paper and a pen, and they had to write down uh, two true things from 2012 and one lie from 2012. And then they, they folded up and they put it in a, in a hat, and we pulled out one at a time, and we would announce the two truths and the lie. We didn't know what order they were in. We didn't know what was true and what was a lie. And, and then we would find out who that person is, and everyone else had to guess which one was the lie. Well, we got to my neighbor, Farmer Dave, and Farmer Dave's great because he provides me at least five illustrations a year, which is awesome. And um, Farmer Dave had three things written on his little piece of paper, and I can't remember two of them, but one of the things Farmer Dave wrote is kind of unforgettable. Farmer Dave wrote that in 2012, he wrote, I shot an eagle. I shot an eagle. So everyone's thinking... That's got to be the lie, right? That's good. He shot an eagle. I mean, that's a protected species. Well, we come to find out that that was actually a truth. Farmer Dave shot an eagle in 2012. And so we're just kind of looking around thinking, you know, he's a farmer. Maybe he doesn't know eagles are on the endangered species. Or, or maybe he's just a farmer and he just doesn't care. Maybe, maybe it was an accident. Maybe he thought it was a squirrel or something. I don't know. And so we're all kind of pausing. And Jason Perkins, I still remember, very perceptively said, wait, are you talking about golf? And Farmer Dave said, yeah, I shot an eagle. The whole time. He had golf in his mind. He wasn't trying to be deceptive. He wasn't trying to trick us. But many of us were thinking he shot an endangered species. He's, he's confessing to a crime. But other people had in their mind the whole time, he's talking about golf. Just out of curiosity, before I share it, how many of you knew he was talking about golf? Okay, see, some of you get it. Others of you probably, like me, thought he was shooting a bird, an eagle. It's amazing how you can hear the same things, right? But perceive them completely different. It's amazing how you can even see the same thing or encounter or experience the same thing and perceive it very differently. Um, a few weeks ago, I borrowed the movie The Life of Pi from a friend. 
And I watched the movie and I didn't quite understand the ending and I kind of perceived it one way and I talked to my friend after and I go, what did it mean when he said this? I won't give it away. It's kind of a twist at the end of the movie. And he explained to me what it meant and it really changed the whole scope of the movie. We saw the same movie, we experienced the same movie, but we saw it in two very, very different ways. Today, we're going to see a passage in which God's understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ collides with the life and ministry, with, with the, the man's understanding of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. We read in the scriptures in Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are your thoughts. And so we're going to see the culmination of Jesus' ministry and how people are perceiving it and how God perceives it, how he understands it. Okay, so if you would open up to John chapter 11, we're going to look at 45 through 57. It's page 898 in the Red Bible, so I'm told, and page 1321 in the Children's Bible. So if you have your new Children's Bible, it's page 1321. Before we dig into that, I kind of want to give you a trajectory of where we're headed with the sermon series. Next week is kind of the end of our our run through John. We were looking at the ministry of Jesus. Um, After that, it goes into the Passion Week, which lasts uh, a lot of John's gospel. And so we're not going to look at that. We want to look at the ministry of Jesus and John before the Passion Week. We're going to cover some of the I am statements um, that are in those later chapters. And then we're going to kind of figure out what we're going to do next. We'll have a short sermon series, seven or eight weeks, not sure what that will be on. And then in the fall, we'll head into the Old Testament, uh, which is exciting. Uh, had a lot of positive feedback from when we preached your Genesis. Um, just an appreciation for seeing how God's grace is all over Scripture, not just in the New Testament. And so we're very excited about that. Also, I believe it's in two weeks, it's Father's Day, and Ron Young is going to be preaching on fatherhood uh, that week, and that's very exciting as well. So we're headed, we're headed in a very uh, uh, encouraging direction. I'm very excited to dig into those things with you. Before we get into this passage, just to let you know what happened just before this, in case you weren't here, is that Jesus' friend, who he loved very much, Lazarus, was sick, and Lazarus died. Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus, and he comes with a whole bunch of Jews that came out to mourn. Lazarus has been dead for four days, okay? And so so here's the setting. We're at Lazarus' tomb. Jesus is there. The disciples are there. Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, are there. And a whole bunch of skeptical Jews that have come from Jerusalem to mourn are there, okay? So that's the picture, and that's where we pick up the passage in John 11, verse 43 through 57. We'll overlap a little bit of last week's passage to see how it connects with this week's. John eleven forty three. When he, Jesus, had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen straps, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God, who are scattered abroad. So, from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And many went up from the country to Jerusalem before Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank thank you for your holy word, Lord. Your word is so good because... The vantage point that we see history can so often be different from your vantage point. Our understanding of Christ can be far different from your understanding of Christ. And we know that your understanding is perfect and true. And so we pray, Lord, today that you would help us, that you would reveal to us Jesus as he actually is, what he actually came to do. And then our hearts and lives will be changed, transformed, and overjoyed by your love for us in him. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As I mentioned in this passage today, there is this crashing together of God's understanding of Jesus' ministry and man's understanding of Jesus' ministry. And it comes together in this great irony. But I want to look at those two things. So first, I want to look at man's understanding of Jesus and his ministry, okay? So first we see the threat, all right? What is the threat? According to the Sanhedrin, according to many of the Jews, what is the major threat in this, in this passage? Well, it's easy to see that the major threat is Jesus' popularity. Remember, all of these Jews came, all of these skeptical Jews, wondering and curious about this miracle worker Jesus. They show up and they see Jesus raise a dead man who had been dead for four days. And some of them start to believe. And so the Sanhedrin, which are these religious rulers of the Jews, are seeing that they are losing people to Jesus, that they are starting to follow Jesus. And they see Jesus as a threat. Some of them, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, we read in verse 45, some of them saw what he did and believed in him because what he did was irrefutable. It was a miracle of God. It was proof that Jesus is indeed the resurrection, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God. But then we read of others, verse 46. 
But some of them, those who did not believe, went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. They went to tell on Jesus. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, the Sanhedrin, which is the, it's, it's composed of, of, uh, of Pharisees and Sadducees uh, who kind of ruled the Jewish people, and said, what are we to do? Great question, right? They come, they say, Jesus raised the dead. Religious leaders, what are we to do? The right response? Believe. We'll get into that more later. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, meaning the temple, and our nation. You know, it's amazing in this passage, the religious leaders that are opposing Jesus do not reject his miracles. They do not reject the fact that Jesus healed a paralytic. They do not reject the fact that Jesus made a man blind from birth see. They do not reject the fact that Jesus took a dead man and made him alive. The evidence was too overwhelming. And yet they still rejected Jesus as the Christ. These men would have known the prophecies of the Old Testament, known that, that these miraculous signs that Jesus was doing was to accompany the coming of the Christ and the Messiah. And yet they still rejected him. And the question is, why? Why would anyone? I mean, you might be here saying, if I was there, if I saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead, then I would believe. They saw it. They heard it. They had it testified to. And yet they still would not believe. And the question is, why? And the answer is fear. We can see it in the Jews that were at the tomb, the Jews who saw Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. They, they run to the Sanhedrin. They run to the Pharisees and they, they tell on Jesus. And the reason they do this is because they are afraid that they will lose their status with the religious leaders. I don't know if you remember, but back when Jesus healed the blind man, one of the consequences of him testifying to Jesus was that he was kicked out of the temple. And that wasn't just for a day or for a week. That was for life. And being kicked out of the temple isn't the same as being kicked out of a church. Here, if you get kicked out of a church, you can go to another church, right? But there, if you were kicked out of the temple, you were kicked out of the whole socioeconomic system of the time. It would be like being kicked out of all of Green Bay. That's kind of what it was. And so these people were afraid that their livelihood would be disrupted, that they would be kicked out of the temple. And so they go to win brownie points with the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they say, look, Jesus raised a man from the dead. What are you going to do about it? They were afraid. They were afraid of what they might lose. If you look at the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were also afraid. Read in verse 48 with me. It says, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place, temple, and our nation. The Sanhedrin understood that Jesus was claiming to be the Christ. There was no mistake. They understood that Jesus was backing it up with miracles. They understood that people were starting to flee to him. But what they did not understand is that Jesus was not interested in being a political Messiah. Jesus was not interested in overthrowing Rome. 
That was their great fear. Their great fear is that Jesus would bring an uprising, that he would try to go against Rome and that he would be crushed. And so would the Sanhedrin and the temple and all of Israel would be dispersed. And so they were afraid of what might happen. You know, we might be tempted to be judgmental of them and say, you should have seen it. You should have believed. You should have trusted. But they were in fear for their very lives. There's a story of a man named Adam. Adam was born and raised in Mus- a Muslim in Morocco. At the age of 20, Adam moved to Canada and he met some Arabs that had become Christians. And he started watching some Christian TV and even went on to a chat room called Pal Talk and started talking to people about Jesus. And he saw how it confronted his faith. He writes, I finally felt like I found what I have been looking for all my life. I found a loving God who died for me on the cross. I dedicated my time to study the Bible and pray. And that's how I found my way to Jesus Christ. Now, in most situations, this is a happy ending. But this was the start of persecution for Adam. His wife of six years left him with their kids. When he... Uh, His family tried to have him arrested and brought back to Morocco to convert him back to Muslim. When he went back to visit his family, they did indeed have him arrested. And he records the account. He said, I was tortured every day. They used to hang me upside down and beat me. After 21 days, my mom, my mom came to me and asked me if I have changed my mind. I said that I would never forsake Christ, even if she wanted to kill me. He finally escaped that, came back to Canada, and his mom sent someone to Canada to kill him. And they were up in a mall area, and this guy pushed him off a four-story roof, and he fell down to the bottom, to the hard floor. And he was in a coma for 15 days. And he woke up to find out that he will be in a wheelchair the rest of his life. And he says this, even with all the pain, hurt, and suffering, I still rejoice because I know that I'm believing in the real God. And then he gives this testimony to Muslims following Christ. And this is what I want you to hear most. He says this, Jesus did not promise us virgins. And he did not promise us rivers of wine. Instead, he said, in the world... You will have tribulations, but (laughs) be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He goes on to write, believe me, I felt the hand of God working through all the troubles I went through. I was denied by parents, friends, and country. But with Christ, all things are better. So let me ask you. It's fear keeping you from following Jesus Christ. Maybe you're on the outside. You say, I have not trusted in Christ, but I don't want to trust him because I'm so afraid of what I have to give up. Jesus is better. (laughs) No matter what you give up, you could give up your very life. Jesus is better. Maybe you are a Christian here today and you know without a shadow of a doubt, what God is calling you to, but you are keeping God at arm's leap. You are stiff-arming him. You are distancing him because you do not want to do what God's calling you to do. 
You are afraid of what you might lose. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's friendships. Maybe it's status in your business realm. I don't know what it is. But you are so afraid that you are ignoring what God is telling you. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything that you can lose. He is of greater value than what you can lose. And so we are called to follow Christ. What you are afraid of is what is keeping you from Jesus. But Jesus is greater than whatever you are afraid of losing. You know, it's ironic. We look at this and we see how God um, created us not to fear man, but to fear him. And yet the very thing that keeps us from God is our fear of man. Jesus puts it this way in Mark 10. He says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you follow Jesus with your whole life, if you surrender everything to him, it will cost you. (laughs) Jesus promises it will cost you something. The question is, do you know in your heart that Jesus is better? Do you know that whatever it costs you, whatever, whatever it is, it is an offering to a Savior who loves you? Jesus is better. The the Pharisees didn't know it. The Sadducees didn't know it. They thought their security was better. But Jesus is better. So we see the the primary problem from man's perspective is Jesus. His popularity that that if if they follow Jesus, they will lose all of these things, including maybe their nation and their temple, their safety and security. And they have a solution to it. Verse 49, one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Caiaphas was high priest that year. Um, and as I mentioned, the Sanhedrin had on it Sadducees and Pharisees. And Sadducees and Pharisees did not get together, get, get along very well. Caiaphas was kind of like the Speaker of the House, and, and, and there would be like the Republicans and Democrats, okay? And so that's the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas says, what we have to do to protect ourselves, to protect our nation, is very simple. We need to kill Jesus. He is threatening our livelihood. He is threatening our security. He was probably, Caiaphas was probably paid very well. He was appointed by the Romans. He had a good relation with the Jews. He had a good life. And Jesus was threatening all of it. And he said, you know what? The ends justify the means. The end is that we want to save the temple and save the nation and save ourselves from the Romans. And the means of doing that is to kill Jesus. No proof is needed. No legal process is needed. No testimony is needed. It is very simple. It is, it is expedient and it is politically prudent. All we have to do is kill Jesus and we will save a nation. We would probably say the same thing, wouldn't we? Trade one person's life for many, right? We would say it serves the common good. It serves the greater good. You can see how the Sanhedrin responds to it. Verse 53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. And so these opposing parties agree. Yes, we need to kill Jesus. And then in verse 57, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, He should let them know so that they might arrest him. 
They were trying to get rid of him. They were trying to get rid of God. This is one way we deal with sin and guilt in our life, isn't it? We try to get rid of God. I I know people who, there are people that I'm friends with that they will not come to church because they know that they're living in sin in their life and they do not want to repent. They do not want to change. They do not want to come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so they're trying to push him away. They're trying to get rid of him. I can see in my own life when there are times in my life where I want to go pursue my sin or when I have sinned and I do not want to repent because I'm stubborn. I try to push God away. I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to pray. I don't want to talk to my brothers and the Lord about it. I don't want anything. I just want to be stubborn. I just want to pursue my sin. I want to push God away. I want to get rid of God. And that's exactly what they're doing here in this passage. They're trying to get rid of God and the flesh, Jesus Christ, that they can pursue their own interests and not his. So just to recap, the threat from man's perspective is Jesus. Following him may cost them everything, and it's not worth it to them. The solution to the problem of Jesus is to kill him. It's to get rid of him, that they can continue on their merry way. So that is man's perspective of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, okay? But now we turn and we get to see in a great ironic twist in this passage, what is God's perspective of what's going on? What is God's understanding of the threat? Well, we see that God's understanding of the threat, the threat is not primarily Jesus. The threat is not the Romans. The threat is not even the Sanhedrin. From God's understanding, the primary threat that faces you and faces me is the sin that dwells within us. The sin that dwells within us is a rejection of God. When we sin, we are rejecting God's lordship over us. It was the case in the garden when they ate the forbidden fruit. God said, you can eat any tree in the whole earth, eat from any tree in the whole earth, but don't eat of this one. And they said, no, thank you. And they rebelled against God. It is, it is the sin of the Sanhedrin. They are rejecting God in the flesh. It is our sin. When we pursue sin, we are rejecting God's lordship and pursuing our own agenda. And when we reject God and we delight in sin, we are told that it leads to death. Both physical death, one day we will all die, but also a spiritual death that we will suffer the judgment of God for all eternity. Jesus talks about this earlier in his ministry in John 8. He says, you will die in your sins. He says this to the Sanhedrin. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so the real problem in the world is not the world. The real problem is you and me. And the sin that lies within us. And that sin leads to death. If you've ever been over to our house, you probably have seen how we have stacks of wood around the perimeter of our house because we heat our house with wood. And so the mice really like wood stacks. I didn't know that. I found that out about two years ago when we had mice running around in our basement. And we thought, where did this come from? And our neighbor told us, oh, they love wood piles. And so in the summer, they go in the wood piles. And then in the winter, they they come into the house, okay? Or they find shelter in some way, shape, or form. Well, when the mice came into our house, my sweet 
lovely wife, Trisha, turned into the Terminator, all right? And she was determined to get rid of these mice. And she did not run around with a broom or a hammer because that would scare them away, right? What she did was she went to the store and she bought mouse poison. These, these little pellets, which is mostly food and a little bit of poison. She put them in places where the mice left droppings. We would look and we would see, you know, okay, the mice ate a little bit here. The mice ate a little bit there. And then pretty soon all of it was eaten up and we had to go get more. And that was scary. And we put out more mouse poison. And then we started finding these little skeletons in different places, like, like in the wood piles or whatever. The mice didn't hate the mice poison. They loved it. They thought it was yummy. They thought it was delicious. It was pleasing. But it was also addictive. And it was also deadly. That's what sin is like. Sin is yummy, isn't it? I mean, sin is fun. If it wasn't, who would do it, right? Sin is fun. But it leads to death. If you're like me, which I'm guessing you are, you're struggling with sin in your life. I hope you are, because if you're struggling with sin, it means you're a believer and you're trying to live for God's glory. And if you're struggling with sin in your life, you might be discouraged. But there's this great reminder that sin leads to death. The death of our relationship with God, the death of our relationship with our spouse, with our family, with our friends. And so we see God says the primary problem is sin, which leads to death. But God doesn't leave us there. God has a solution for that problem of sin and death. Verse 49. I'm going to go long today. Just bear with me. We're going to feed you, so you should be okay with it. Verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Perish. And then here's where the irony kicks in. Verse 51, he said, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. Caiaphas spoke better than he knew, didn't he? When he said, it is better for you that one man should die instead of a nation. D.A. Carson commenting on this verse said, When Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same thing. (laughs) When Caiaphas spoke, God was also speaking, even if they were not saying the same thing, right? I shot an eagle. It meant something completely different. For Caiaphas, what it meant was we will sacrifice. It was sacrificial. We will sacrifice this one man that we can save a nation that we can save the Jews. And yet God had a greater meaning in it, that he was going to save his church, that he was going to bring people to himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation and form a people to worship him. The great irony of this is they accomplished the purpose. Jesus was crucified. They had had different goals in mind, but they had the same means, which was the crucifixion of the Son of God. But Caiaphas' plan failed. Caiaphas was soon out of office. The Romans destroyed Jerusalem. But in Christ's death and resurrection, God accomplished his purpose. The deep irony is that the high priest Caiaphas was a shadow of the great high priest Jesus Christ. And that shadow, Caiaphas, 
crucified the reality, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He died for our sin so that even though we eat the mouse poison of sin, he dies on our behalf. Do you remember when John the Baptist was introducing Jesus? He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is our substitute. He takes away our sins and pays for it in full upon the cross. Let me end with this story. During the 17th century, uh, Oliver Cromwell, Lord Protector of England, sentenced a soldier to be shot for his crimes. The execution was to take place at the ringing of the evening curfew bell. However, when the time came, the bell did not sound. Evidently, the soldier's fiance had climbed into the bell tower and clung to the bell as it rang. And so as the bell swung back and forth, she absorbed the impact every time. Cromwell called her to come to him and account for what she had done. She showed him her wounds and her bleeding hands. And he was touched and he said, your lover shall live because of your sacrifice. Curfew shall not ring tonight. In Isaiah 53, God proclaims that Jesus will be pierced for our transgressions. He will be crushed for our iniquity. Christ is our substitute. And he was not only bruised, he was sacrificed on our behalf because it is better that one man should die than a whole people should perish. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that your perspective would become our perspective. That we would not try to push God away and pursue sin, but that we would embrace Jesus Christ as our Savior. That we would enjoy and celebrate that he has died so that we don't have to. That though we die, we shall live because he is the resurrection and the life. Lord God, let us live in the hope of that glory. Let us rejoice and enjoy it because you have given it to us by your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.